The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be back in town. Been gone quite a bit this summer, so I should be around all fall. And I thought, as I often do in September, it's nice to go back to the basics and like we're going back to school and remember what it is about this practice. And uh, I'm a big believer in humility and one of the most important things we should have humility about is perhaps we don't really know that much about the causes for happiness. Because if we think we do, then we tend not to be very interested But when we have some humility, like, how is it that this mind, this heart, falls into patterns of being really tight, really closed down, feeling oppressed? And why is it at times that this mind, this heart, feels really light and buoyant and happy, connected, peaceful? I mean, we think, you know, we have these superficial explanations why we're happy. Well, this person treated me nicely today, so I'm happy. We often externalize the the causes of happiness and unhappiness. And then, from a sort of Buddhist practice point of view, we mistakenly try to, you know, nail down our happiness by dealing, by manipulating things out there, external conditions, like I can just make my partner treat me the way I want to be treated, or if I can just make my body the way I I need or want my body to be, then I'll be happy in some kind of lasting or permanent way. So as a review of our practice, it's good to reflect, okay, well, what, what do I think I know about the path to happiness or the path to peace. And if I really know the causes for peace and happiness, well then, am I peaceful and happy? Why haven't I activated the causes? Or maybe I have and it hasn't worked. It's just interesting how persistent human beings can be like, if we think eating a big meal is going to make us happy, how many times, I'm speaking about myself, you know, how many times has I, have I looked to food, the quantity, the quality, the you know, whatever, of food to make me happy? But has it in any lasting or meaningful way? How many times have we thought pretty sure that some interaction with another human being doing something with somebody is going to make me happy or getting rid of something is going to make me happy or even coming to calm ground is going to make me happy only to find this is a great story from Dharma Bums this journal or book written by Jack Kerouac way back when who had some kind of Buddhist meditation practice, and he had this idea of, maybe some of you remember reading this, it was popular way back when, 
Uh, he took a job as a fire tower person somewhere in the Cascades in probably Washington State, and where you just sit up on a big fire tower for most of the summer, and every whatever hour you look around with your binoculars and see if you can see any smoke. And if so, you call it in, you know, you radio it in. And he had this idea that he'd be there communing with God or communing with the divine or communing, communing with Nibbana. It wasn't exactly clear, but it was <laughs> going to be good. And he writes in, his, in this book, you know, that he ended up being with his old hateful self, right? Habit energies, the habit, you know, that the habits that dominate our mind, that's what we often find. And we thought that, you know, in this case, escaping, if I just got out of the city, if I didn't have to work, some of you now are retired, you know the fallacy of that thought. Yeah, I mean, it may be really nice to be retired, but you didn't instantaneously become happy without any deviations from happiness once you became retired. Or those of you who didn't have a job and now have a job, your happiness isn't perfect now that you have a job. You know, there are some moments of happiness and some moments of dissatisfaction and un- dis-ease and unhappiness. So when we are willing, you know, to have some humility about happiness, then we're, you know, it kind of raises the question, well, what, what am I going to do? Given that I know that I don't have perfect understanding about the causes for happiness, the causes for peace, what am I going to do? And the Buddha has this wonderful little teaching where he says, when people suffer, they do one of two things. They either beat their breast, cry out, lament in an anguished way, you know, some version of, oh, poor me, why me, please stop. So basically acting out when we're suffering, acting out in a way that doesn't really address our suffering. So that's one thing people do when they're suffering, is they react to the suffering in a way that doesn't address the suffering, doesn't address the causes for the suffering. And the other way is the way I've been talking about. The person responds with some humility, is there anybody out there that knows anything about the causes for suffering? Right? And somebody says, yeah, this will help. And you don't immediately believe it, believe it, but you check it out. Well, let's see. I mean, what is this person saying? What are you saying? And then you check it out in your own life and you see. Does what this person say leads to suffering, leads to anguish, leads to feeling heavy or stressed out? When I put it into practice, do I realize some relief from the suffering that I've been experiencing? So to sum it up, the Buddha says, people respond to suffering by suffering or by searching for relief in a systematic way, in an intelligent way, right? With our life as our laboratory, we check out and we see what actually correlates, what actually works in terms of leading to less stress, 
more stability, more clarity, more natural kindness and skillfulness. And ultimately, as people in this tradition have said for hundreds of years, the unconditional, unshakable release of the heart, a happiness, a peace that isn't a function of the particular circumstances or causes and conditions in the moment. I mean, that's a pretty radical thing. As I mentioned before, we tend to be pretty certain that our happiness and unhappiness is being caused by external conditions. So when somebody says from their own direct experience that there's a happiness that I'm beginning to understand or someone like a Buddha that I've completely understood that isn't a function of external conditions or isn't a function of any conditions whatsoever. We get interested. And one of the things, like the, you know, if you're taking your lead from the teachings of the Buddha, one of the things he talks about all the time when you study his teachings is that when you know that you don't know the causes for happiness, Because of this humility, this honesty, self-honesty, you're willing to train the mind to have sustained present moment awareness. Because the way to understand, like if we know we don't know, the way to begin to understand the causes for stress and the causes for release is by sustaining present moment awareness. Because where do the causes for suffering and the causes for release show up? Well, they have to show up here, right? So if the causes are here, both the causes for happiness and the causes for unhappiness, well, the first thing we need to do is develop an instrument that can observe, that can clearly see what's happening. And this is where mindful awareness comes in. We train the heart. It's not a matter of just following our habit energy. You know, we kind of like, and in New Age circles, there's some teachings that all we have to do is follow the mind. You know, just let things be. But that's a little bit like the story from Jack Kerouac. Letting things be might be continuing to be an old, hateful person. You know, irritated by everything, or you know, superficial, or whatever our habit energy is. It doesn't take much reflection to realize that a lot of our habit energy isn't something we want to just continue on with because it's lustful, it's greed, you know, it's hateful, it's disconnected, it's not very functional, actually. And it's not about being judgmental, it's just about recognizing the way it is. So we train the heart because we understand that somehow through our own observation, through hearing what other people have to say and checking it out, we realize initially it's a pretty you know, feeble intuition, but we start to have more and more intuition that whatever the causes for stress, whatever they are, they're here somehow in the mind, in the 
force of habit in the mind. And so we train the heart to observe, to get to know more clearly where the cause is. Because if I thought, if I like my careful reflection uh, demonstrated that the cause of my suffering actually was my partner, well then, you know, I would carefully observe her so I could tell her what she needs to do to get better (laughs) so I could be happier. But when we're really honest, when we have humility and we start to check it out, we realize that it isn't really our friend, our job, our partner, the weather. Even clearly difficult things like, you know, not being able to earn enough to do the things that seem necessary to do in life, or feeling oppressed for different reasons in our society, in our communities, feeling betrayed, feeling mistreated or abused. I mean, those things, the kind of suffering that arises from circumstances, how could anybody state that they don't matter? They do matter. It's just that what matters even more doesn't mean we stop dealing with external conditions. But what matters turns out to matter even more, and what we have even more control over is how this mind, this heart, relates to both the pleasant and the unpleasant circumstances, both internal and external circumstances. It just turns out to be a much more relevant cause for stress and suffering. And this is the first real turning point in, you could say, just human life. And you see that, like, not about judging other people, just looking at our own life, a lot of the time we're just operating with the assumption that what really matters are the external conditions. And we're just totally about fixing the things we think should be fixed, telling our partners how they should be, you know, or trying to fix our body, or all the even approaching meditation practice that way, like judging our mind, judging our habit energies, hating them, wishing things were different. But after a while, you know, and just observing with some mindful awareness, we see the endlessness of this attempt to fix things. It's the image, I think it was used all the way back at the time of the Buddha, so this simile has been used for a long time, that we get sick and tired of stepping on sharp objects, so we have this brilliant idea of covering the entire world in carpet so that it will be soft, We can walk on it without hurting our feet, right? I mean, that's sort of the first approach. You know, I fix my partner, fix my body, fix the weather, fix the people at work, fix the politicians, fix the racists, you know, all this sort of, of course, that doesn't refer to us because we don't have any of those seeds in us, right? And this is... Always how it's like it ends up being an act of violence on other people, this approach of covering all the sharp objects with carpet. 
Or we can build a pair of shoes. And then we somehow find it workable, living in an imperfect world. And this is really this understanding that what I really need to do is I need to start taking responsibility for how the mind is relating, how the mind is showing up, the qualities of mind that are present. And I need to observe them. I need to get to know them. To really see that even though I might be a little cold because of the weather, or I might have my I might sort of find that the way someone's treating me is really unpleasant. How my mind relates to the cold weather or how my mind relates to how that person is treating me. It's like there are many possibilities how I understand it what my mind does in in relationship, in response to it. And some of those ways of relating take us right to hell. And some of those ways of relating, we can maintain a lot of equanimity and peace, even when circumstances are really difficult. There's a story I sometimes tell in the introduction to mindfulness class about a farmer going to see the Buddha. Some of you have heard this story, I'm sure. And he's frustrated, so he seeks out the Buddha. It takes him a long time to find the Buddha because he's in a different town and the Buddha's always on the move. And, but eventually, after a few weeks of traveling, he tracks down the Buddha, gets an audience with the Buddha, explains all the problems there are being a farmer, the weather, his kids, the farm animals, the pests, on and on. And finally says to the Buddha, so what do I do? You know, expecting this person to have the right answer. And the Buddha says, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems. It's just how it is. And even if I had some clever idea about how you could get rid of one of your problems, you just get another problem anyway. (laughs) And the farmer just couldn't believe it. Why would people think you have anything to offer if that's all you're going to say? And (laughs) he stomps off, angry, you know, missing a couple weeks of work and knowing that it's going to be a mess getting back into what he has to do on the farm. But before he's out of earshot, the Buddha says, but you know, I can help you with your 84th problem. And so the guy being desperate swallows his pride, to some degree at least, and turns back and comes back, okay, what? You know, what's the 84th problem? And the Buddha said, well, the 84th problem is you don't like having 83 problems. <laughs> that I can help you with, right? Because the 83 problems in the story, you probably guess, it just represents having a life, having a body, having a mind, having relationships, right? Having this human existence. Those are the 83 problems. Do you know any human being, the most beautiful, intelligent, wealthy, powerful, you know, whoever that would be, one of the Kardashians? <laughs> Do you know anybody who is, doesn't have 83 problems? I mean, just the problem with being a human being, like aging, or the insecurity of having 
intimate relationships. Even those of you with the best relationship, it's problematic, right? Or you're not paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably trouble's brewing if you (laughs) You might want to sit down with your partner and have a conversation. So we take up this practice of uh, paying attention, cultivating mindful awareness, using the mind to observe the mind. And in particular, we're observing how the mind is relating, (coughs) excuse me, and how the way the mind's relating correlates with being stressed and how the mind relates in other ways, that correlates with being peaceful. Oops. It really matters how the mind relates. I mean, just in shorthand, we'd say when when the mind relates with wisdom, it sets emotion, it plants the seeds of peace. And, And by that I mean, that's how I'm defining wisdom. Relating with wisdom you know you're relating with wisdom when you've planted the seeds for peace no matter the conditions. Stability of mind, ease of mind and heart, peaceful mind and heart, no matter the conditions. When this starts to show up, that only happens because you're relating skillfully with wisdom. And when I say, or when the Buddha says we're relating unskillfully, We know that because it's planting the seeds of being stressed and oppressed by life, burdened by life. So when you're feeling burdened by life, we should be very interested, how is the mind relating in the present moment that is somehow being, somehow correlates with feeling really burdened, really oppressed by the conditions of the moment? And what way might the mind relate, understand, be aware, that would alleviate this feeling of being burdened, feeling tight, being reactive, greed, anger, and delusion? These are the three, sometimes poisons, the three roots of unwholesome action, right? Greed, anger, delusion. Three unwholesome roots. And the opposites, non-greed, generosity, renunciation, non-aversion, kindness and compassion, non-delusion, seeing things as they are, seeing with insight, understanding deeply the way it is. And this is what we observe. This is why we cultivate the stability of awareness. Now, it isn't that easy, right, because culturally and for all kinds of reasons, we have a lot of habits around being distracted, being superficial, doing too many things at one time. We simply don't value the continuity of present moment awareness. Is there anybody in the room that can admit, can say without a doubt in the mind that your value and the continuity of present moment awareness trumps all other values right, in your life. It's the most important thing, and it's not for most of us, maybe all of us. 
So a lot of, because it takes work to cultivate continuity, present moment awareness, and that effort, that persistence is going to come because we've learned to value it. We've made the correlation that when there is a continuity of present moment awareness, not only is that itself calming and pleasant, but it really supports the kind of learning about how to relate, how to be in ways that doesn't plant seeds of suffering, that plants the seeds for being released and open and kind and happy. Then we really are interested. I mean, and I always make this joke, but you know, if I told you that just for kicks, we've hidden, you know, a million dollars in unmarked bills in the building, many of you, maybe all of you, would persist in looking, right? We would, you know, it's for the taking. We wouldn't give up. I mean, basically, the Buddha's, you know, he doesn't doesn't want to trigger greed, but he he talks about that. You know, if unshakable release were not possible, I wouldn't tell you it's possible. I wouldn't tell you to practice, but because it is possible, I suggest that you practice, that you persist, that you make this the most important thing. So this is, I mean, you can't, you can do a little, you can do a little of the practice on borrowed faith, like, well, this sounds interesting, maybe I'll check it out. But very quickly, you have to begin to see the value in the continuity of awareness. Like the Buddha says, this, you start getting a taste of the benefit right in the beginning. It's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. It's not like you have to take it on faith until you have that full and perfect awakening and you're a Buddha yourself. But just with a little bit of present moment awareness, we learn, and with a little learning, there's some letting go. Like if I'm walking around because I'm stressed and I'm like this, and I have just a moment of awareness and I notice that I'm like this, doing this is pretty pretty easy. I mean, there's an immediate, like, oh, that's nice. It's nice to drop that load. That wasn't helping. Right? So we, we, we start to notice the very pragmatic value of present moment awareness. And when you're sustaining, when you get a little bit of momentum and you're sustaining present moment awareness, you start to notice all the old habits of wanting to pick up something neurotic, to worry about something we don't need to worry about, planning something we don't need to plan, judging somebody we don't need to judge, hating ourselves in a way that doesn't really make sense, doesn't really line up with the facts, it's just a habit. And then we, we put it down. Actually, the dropping of those neurotic habits happens even without you doing it. You just have to see the habit for what it is. Not functional, not helpful, not even personal. It's just habit. It's not even exactly right to say it's me. It's just like, you know, 
Have you noticed that a lot of those thoughts that show up in your mind, it's not like you decided, oh, I'm going to think that thought. Those thoughts show up because of the habits in the mind. And those habits, did you choose those habits? No, they just got set in motion due to many different causes and conditions. This is what we mean by the impersonal nature of the mind, the impersonal nature of habit energy. We get so respectful. I mean, I don't, especially for devotional types, I don't think it's wrong to say something like, we need to fall in love with this practice, this experience of being awake, being aware, being mindfully aware. We need to know what it is to be aware. Because initially, you know, when we're just sort of learning, <clears throat> we just read an article or come to a couple classes, we pretty much think that being aware means focusing my attention on some experience. And the reason we think that is it sort of fits, but it's not quite right. And it can lead to some bad habits in our mindful awareness practice. Being aware is, uh, in some ways, simpler and more natural than directing our attention to a present moment object and holding the attention there. That, in a way, is a training. Like, that could be a very useful training. But it's not, it's a little bit uh, off to think of that as being mindfully aware. So just a few little experiments to help us, given that we're going back to basics for the next couple weeks. It'd be good to know what we mean by mindful awareness. The Buddha really makes us front and center in how he recommends we train the mind. I mean, there are other ways the Buddha teaches to train our mind, but this is one of the most important. Right now, I'd like you to stop being aware. See what you can do to stop being aware. If you can shut it off or... What can you do now in your mind to stop being aware? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) How many people suddenly became more aware? (laughs) So what does that tell us about awareness? It's related to being interested. That's sort of a provocative, interesting question for the mind. Like, yeah, is there an off button? And most of the robots on, in the movies, that's somewhere back here. Right? There's a little <laughs> off switch. No, there's not an off switch. That's sort of interesting in itself. But the other interesting thing that happens is when the mind gets interesting, I'm sorry, interested, when the mind is interested, then there's naturally awareness there, right? So sustaining present moment of awareness has a lot to do you know, and this is why I'm talking about valuing it. It's like we're valuing the present moment. Because in a way, it's our life. Our life exists only here in the present moment. Quite, this is another little experiment. And if it works, it will make you interested. Is there any way to connect with the past? Right? The past is completely gone, isn't it? We have thoughts about the past, of course. Can you remember like when you walked into the building tonight? A lot of us can. But that thought is here and now, right? That's being known here and now. 
There is no past behind us in any way whatsoever. Right? Wednesday up until 8.38, the time right now, has ceased to exist in any way whatsoever as much as we can tell. It does not exist. Thoughts about earlier in our life or thoughts here and now. And interestingly, the future, even a moment from now, does not exist anywhere that can be seen or touched or known. All we have is something very, in a way, thin that we call the present moment. And the present moment is a very ephemeral thing because it's always becoming the next present moment. So something about the present moment is always falling out of existence in order for the next moment to come. But before it's even really here, it's on its way out. So the present moment is a, whether it's kind of a flashing in and out like a staccato or a strobe light, or whether it's this ceaselessly changing process, conditional process. But in any case, the present moment is a very insubstantial thing. And there's nothing else but it. Now that makes us interested, right? It's like, and then if we're lost in thought, of course it's still, in a sense, the present moment, but there's no reflective awareness that it's like this. This is being known. This is the life that's being known, being met, being lived. Isn't it amazing that we have this present moment and nothing else? And how not interested. (laughs) And it becomes a chronic habit in our mind to be more interested in the past and the future, which are just our thoughts here and now, except we don't think it's here and now. We think it's in the past or in the future. That is delusion, right? And that, living in that way, is stressful. Thinking when we're thinking about the past is actually the past is stressful. Thinking about the future and thinking that it's in the future when it's really here and now is stressful. But if we think about the past and we know that's just a thought here and now, that's not stressful. Or we think about the future, like, oh, how nice it would be. But the wisdom in the mind realizes, yeah, that's just a thought. If there's any energetic leaning into that thought, yeah, that's just that energetic leaning in. It's just that being known here and now. All of a sudden, things get really simple, equanimous, because the mind's not diluted. Attachment, reactivity, getting tight, requires being confused. When we really understand the way it is, the heart, the mind lets go. Naturally. This is another real relief. Like, you know, you could read a lot when you read the Buddhist books. You can read a lot about balance, coming into balance, living in a balanced way, or equanimity, or read a lot about non-attachment, non-grasping. And then it just becomes another big should. Like, I shouldn't be attached. I should be non-attached. I should be equanimous. I should be peaceful. I should be compassionate. And we start getting really stressed. Like and self hate, you know, full of self hate and comparing ourselves to other people, and it becomes a mess. There's only one thing we actually have to do that we have to persist at 
mindful awareness. Because the letting go of attachment naturally arises. The letting go of hatred naturally arises. It's a little bit like if you're holding a pan that's really hot, you don't need any sort of sophisticated instructions about letting go. All you need to know is that it's really hot and letting go happens. And it's the same way with the whole process of awakening that the Buddha laid out. If we talk about the whole path of awakening, it is a very uh, rich and amazing unfolding. And when you hear teachers or other people talk about their own process of becoming a little wiser, a little kinder, seeing the ways their mind was stuck, seeing what the mind wasn't seeing. I mean, it is kind of interesting. This is why we have good Dharma friends or good friends, is we tell them our stories. We say, you know, I've been in this relationship for 10 years, and we've always been banging our heads in this way, and suddenly, you know, I saw something I was doing that I hadn't seen before, and I sort of stopped doing it, and the relationship's working so much better. Or raising a preteen, or is she a teen now, right? And, you know, every once in a while, after banging our heads for a couple years, we realize something about being a mother of a teenager, and we do it a little bit better, right? So these moments of awakening, they arise, and one of the things that is always true is, in that moment of letting go, we may tell ourselves our story later that, oh, I did that, but that's not what happened. There was just cumulative, slow, gradual, cumulative understanding about what's going on. And eventually the mind began to hone in and to it where the holding was. It saw the holding as it actually was, dysfunctional, not helpful, a cause for stress. And if the mind is patient and persistent enough, letting go happens. It always happens when things are seen as they are. Same when we see really skillful ways of relating. We're relating with non-attachment, with kindness, with patience, with forgiveness, with a sense of humor, not a belittling sense of humor, but just understanding that it's not easy to be a human being. And then those tendencies, those ways of relating, don't get abandoned, they get strengthened, because what does the mind see? That way of being, that way of relating, that's functional, that helps. That's in the direction of stability and ease and a deepening of understanding that allows me to be even more skillful, more easeful as I navigate this life. And that's such a relief that we don't have to figure out how to be a great person, a skillful person, an awakened person. We just need to value mindful awareness. We need to persist at this. We need to fall in love and everything happens from that. And the nice thing is it makes a lot of sense that if we're going to be a human being, we should be aware. We should be connecting with the way it is. It doesn't, I mean, can you imagine somebody standing on a podium or sitting up on a little platform like this and talking about, you know, I've really checked it out and I'm pretty sure that the way, the best way is to get really good at distraction, you know. (laughs) And I've made a couple lists. I've checked out what's available on Netflix. 
You know, I've looked at the good books that you can read and the good things you can have conversations about. And, you know, basically the strategy for being a happy human being is to line up really good distractions until you die. (laughs) And the best, you know, the saints are those people who have been really good at finding, you know, the distractions. So they don't actually have to be awake, be present to what it's like to be a human being. And that's your ticket. You know, and we'll call it, you know, the religion of distraction. Full, complete, distracted life. I mean, nobody would like that just intuitively doesn't make sense. Although although we practice that, I mean to be honest, a lot a lot large part of each day we're basically pursuing that strategy to be honest with ourselves, checking our email more than we need to, checking the news more than we need to, or whatever whatever we use to fill up the space so that we don't accidentally become aware. Oh, oh, this is how it is. <laughs> I mean, that should be a telltale sign how shocking it is, how scary it can be to land in the present moment and realize, oh, my goodness, this is how it is, this body, or this is how it is, this mind. Instead, we want to never get too far away. So even if we get lost in thought, you know, we wouldn't, it would be nice if at least every five or ten minutes we reemerge and realize, oh, my God, I'm lost in thought, and it feels like this. We have at least a moment of awareness before we get pulled back into the vortex of delusion, deluded thinking, obsessive thinking, frantic planning, worrying, judging, comparing, whatever we fill our days with. And then more and more sustaining that. And that's what the daily sit is all about, is building some momentum, planting seeds of mindful awareness, creating that mental habit that heart habit to be aware and to when we're aware to really value it. That's the most important thing for building the momentum. One is to be aware. Two, to be aware that you're aware. And three, to be aware that being aware is wholesome, is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Middle means when you have some continuity, And the end is when you have unbroken continuity, right? Like a Buddha. That's kind of the definition of a Buddha is their present moment awareness is unbroken. So they don't slide into reactive patterns. Reactive patterns maybe get triggered, but the mind isn't confused, doesn't fall under the spell of old habits. Oh, yeah. That's just the feeling of being irritated. I can be aware of the feeling of being irritated without identifying with being the one who's irritated. And that person doesn't act it out. So we'll talk more about the practice next week, but I'll leave 10 minutes for people to share from your own practice or any questions you have about what I've said tonight. So any questions that people have, what comes to mind? Yeah, please, Robin, start us off. 
Uh, my name is Robin, and I have an observation. Um, sometimes, like I'm within a, a present, I feel like I am present with the moment, but it's like I'm swimming between different things, like noticing the crickets outside, and then like noticing my back, like it's like I'm restless with the things that are present in the moment. Like I can't settle into one thing or there are too many distractions that are within the present moment. What makes them distractions? Like why can't, why couldn't that be an accurate, like if mindful awareness is a mirror, present moment awareness is like a mirror that is simply reflecting the way the mind and body are, why couldn't what you describe, Robin, be an example of mindfulness doing its job, reflecting that the mind, the attention, is knowing different objects, and then maybe also noticing that the mind is judging that this and calling it something like restlessness. Could... If that's actually the way that it is, then mindful awareness would be aware that it's like this. So we want to be careful about pathologizing or judging what awareness is aware of, right? Now, some meditation techniques would be saying, okay, honey, let's just pay attention to this one aspect of the present moment. Hearing, 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 you know, hearing the crickets, or feeling the sensations of the breath coming in, being aware of the sensations of the breath going out, breathing in, being known, breathing out, being known. That's one way to practice, where you have a directed attention to a single object of awareness or meditation object. But there's also what we sometimes call open attention, where We still want the continuity of present moment attention, but it can be with different objects. Hearing the crickets, noticing the mind is thinking, just thinking being known, noticing the ache in the back, aching, aching is being known, hearing, hearing is being known. Is this good enough? Doubting the practice is being known, right? (laughs) So... It doesn't matter what the mind is doing. It doesn't matter what the internal processes are. What matters is, is the wisdom, the wisdom awareness, able to recognize, oh, this is just the next thing being known. This is the next thing being known. This is the next thing being known. Yeah, thanks, Robin. Who would like to go next? Yeah, Marianne. So then, I'm Marianne. Um, So I have this question. I'm so glad you asked that. Does the narrator ever go away? Well, it certainly, and people I'm sure can attest to this, it, sometimes it's like really the narrator or the inner dialogue or the thinking mind is really strong, you know, and very hard because thoughts, you know, the habit of the mind is to identify with thoughts. Take them as like, I'm talking to myself, I better become that, basically. We are the narration. We become the narration. That's the sense, the internal or subjective sense that I am my thoughts. But 
when there's more samadhi, you know, when there's more of that stability of awareness and the continuity of awareness, then that that inner calm, that inner stability, it creates sort of a counterweight so that it's just easier to notice that thoughts are just thoughts, right? And then it becomes less important whether they're there or not. Because the, the reason we want our thoughts to go away is not because of what they are. Thoughts, a thought is not much of anything. I mean, just think a thought like pink elephant. You know, just think pink elephant. I mean, what is that thing that we call thought? It's not much of anything. The big clunky thing is the identification with the thought, the attachment. As a psychic event, the attachment is a big thing. Thoughts are not big things. Right? I'm going to die. That thought is not a big thing. Getting attached to that thought is a big thing. So when there's a lot of stability or a lot of wisdom or both, so stability of mind, what we call samadhi, or not so well translated as concentration. When there's concentration, then the calm of the concentration creates a counterweight so the mind is less seduced by thoughts. And, we, and then it's just easier to see, oh, that's just a thought. And when there's wisdom, which is related to samadhi, but it can also be independent of stability, you can have a lot of wisdom, even when the mind is kind of superficial. And, and then wisdom knows where the mind is superficial. right? So wisdom knows things are just what they are and that it's nature and not self. That's what wisdom does. So wisdom, even if there isn't samadhi, will know, well, that's just a thought. And if there's an emotion with that thought, well, that's just a feeling being known. So it knows, wisdom knows in a way, and this is an imperfect simile, wisdom knows how to step outside of the thing being known and realize that's just something being known. Wisdom knows how, not, how to be not confused by what's being known. But that wisdom is a narrator. No. No, wisdom is not a narrator. Wisdom is not verbal. Although that, that narrating mind, the thinking mind, might immediately be inclined to articulate with words what that intuitive wisdom just understood. But you don't need thinking to know oh, that's just, you know, just that's just what that is, you know. Or do you need, like if you pinch yourself and that unpleasant sensation, do you need the thought, oh that's unpleasant, to know that it's unpleasant? Or to know something's pleasant? We think we do. We've gotten, gotten into the habit of thinking that we don't know anything without thinking. So we're basically not, haven't developed an understanding of what we call wisdom, what wisdom is. Wisdom is that which understands or comprehends the nature of things, how things come to be. But you don't need to be able to articulate how things come to be to know how things come to be. That's why you can have people with really deep wisdom, a lot of freedom, but they would never be able to give a good Dharma talk, never be able to articulate what happened to them, but they really have deep understanding. 
Yeah. We have time for one more person? Yeah. Laura. Hi, I'm Laura. And um, I liked what you said about humility. And one thing I noticed in my practice is that when I'm like my best moments of understanding are when I, I realize like, I'll just be really curious about this thing that's like uncomfortable or like, you know, this like not knowing, but then after having some understanding in my practice for a little while, I kind of feel like, oh, I understand things now. And then I have become a little less interested and I realized like I kind of lost that. <laughs> yeah, that's a deep, deep point. We have to be on the lookout that the actual fruits of our practice where the mind starts to understand things better can be a cause for the practice falling apart to some degree because we, in a way we ossify we freeze what we've learned because in a way, what does the ego want more than anything else? It just wants permanent safety. It wants like a permanent, I'm done, I did it. <laughs> you know, I'm home, I'm in my bed, I'm done. But the Dharma practice takes us away from all security because we're learning to be safe, not being dependent on anything. So it's like we're a perpetual learner, right? We should always sustain the interest because we're, uh, we're not looking for solid ground. We're looking for understanding. And when the mind takes the understanding that we've gained and we kind of create something for the ego, then we're no longer paying attention. And that's so cool that you caught that, Laura. And that it's like spiritual goal to realize that that uh, as nice as it is to think that we know, it's a setup for betrayal. The Buddha says this. He says, no matter how you conceive it, it will always be other than that. It will never be something we we that the sort of you know ego states to itself doesn't mean that that narrator won't say something that's relatively wise from time to time. <clears throat> it just means we don't want to get established in it. We want to stay a learner. You know, that's like in Zen, they call it the beginner's mind. <clears throat> it's so useful. We need to leave it here. It's nine o'clock. Thanks for the wonderful questions, comments. And let's just sit for a few seconds, just enough time to take a breath together or two breaths. Wishing everyone a good week of practice. Besides the formal practice you do at home, just get interested in sustaining present moment awareness and looking at what's in the way. And just working on it on the level of, do I value it? Do I trust it? How does it inform? What does it do in this moment? Just bringing that awareness in. Just that would be really great. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.